0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg
0: PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com.
2: Paul, a lot of
1: people have been asking, how realistic is it for a recession in the United States this year? And a growing number of investors are saying it just doesn't look that likely, especially with earnings looking as good as they are.
3: It, you're right. And uh, you know what we've been talking about certainly over the last several weeks is that uh, the U.S. economy seems to be you know, a beacon, if you will, relative to China, relative to, say, some of the data we're seeing coming out of Europe. Um, so the question is, how long can that last?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, so let's bring in Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. He's also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion, uh, based in Chicago. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. What's your read on the likelihood of recession this year?
2: I think it's a lot higher than people are uh, discounting. And I think the reason is, is that most of us are looking at the wrong metric. Ben Bernanke, when he was on the DS with Janet Yellen and Jay Powell said that economies are murdered. So let's stop measuring the economy's cholesterol level, blood pressure, heart rate, or its GDP or retail sales or payrolls And let's look at who's walking around with a murder weapon that's going to kill it. And high on that list is the Federal Reserve with their intention to raise rates and reduce the balance sheet. They are the most frequent murderer of economies. Janet Yellen said that on the DS (laughs) January 4th. Jim. And so... I'm afraid that they're going to do what they've done so well in the past, kill this economy.
1: But even George, uh, even, even Esther George has come out and been dovish when it comes to raising rates. Every single Fed member has come out and basically said, we'll be patient, we'll chill out. So how likely is it? I mean, their, their murder weapon is looking a little bit more like a spoon than a machete.
2: That's true. And a month ago, they were intent on doing the equivalent of five rate hikes. I I think we need to go back and remember that a month ago, they said they were going to do two rate hikes, and they were going to have the uh, balance sheet on automatic pilot to cut through the chase with the balance sheet. I think Wall Street thinks that's like another two or three rate hikes. So they were looking at the Fed saying four to five rate hikes with two of them on automatic pilot, and that's why the market freaked out. Now they're backing off of it. If the markets recover, I'm afraid that they're going to go right back to... Reducing the balance sheet on autopilot, two more rate hikes, markets are irrational, they had their little hissy fit, and now we're right back to where we were in December, and then the markets will struggle one more time. So yes, they're off that now. I'm what just you, not so sure they will be when we get to April, May, or June.
3: So Jim, what you mentioned the balance sheet. What do you think, and you, I know you don't have a lot of confidence here in what, they, in what they say, but what do you think the Fed will do with its balance sheet in 2019?
2: I think that for now they're going to continue to reduce their balance sheet, I think that the next uh, level of turbulence in markets, if we get one, let's say if we get one, they'll start to reconsider that. I think the fundamental problem here is the Fed thinks that to use J-Policy, this is watching paint dry, this is technical, everybody's eyes roll, and nobody cares about this. The market thinks this is another form of tightening. And if the markets start down again, stocks retest their December lows, I think that then we might see them back off of the balance sheet. I had to guess. I think that's what's coming, that we will get a retest and they will start to rethink the balance sheet. But they're not now. They still plan on going $50 billion a month.
1: OK, well, the other aspect, uh, the other murderer of financial cycles tends to be financial imbalances, is according to Janet Yellen. And you highlighted this recently uh, in a note. And I'm just wondering, on that side of the equation, is there an issue?
2: Uh, there is an issue to the extent that We have seen, you know, to use a Wall Street parlance, a drop of liquidity, that markets can be moved around with less and less money than they've ever had, and that could create some kind of a problem. As far as financial imbalances go, if you're looking for them in the U.S., no, I don't think that the U.S. is outrageously undervalued or overvalued. I do think, though, if you look overseas, especially to China, their market is very vulnerable. They could see a swoon. That's the second largest economy They have problems. Everybody's going to feel it. And I still think that Europe is not out of the woods yet. So if there's a financial imbalance coming, I still think it might come out of the rest of the world, not necessarily the U.S. And within the U.S., I do think we have a bit of a liquidity problem. It's not debilitating, but it's definitely worth mentioning.
3: So, Jim, at the risk of going someplace we maybe should not go, let me just ask you, what are your thoughts on Chairman Powell? Do you view it as just a lack of leadership or just not having a principle to stick with?
2: You know, um, I was really excited when he came in, and I was really having high hopes for him, and he's been a bit disappointing. I think the mistake that, Paul, is I'm going to go into my mind-reading mode right now, is that he is not not a PhD in economics. He's trying to act like one, and I think the sooner he stops, the better off we'll be. Every speech he gives, he flip-flops from dovish to bearish. He flip-flops four or five times since October, and he gives us no idea where he really stands on any of this stuff, and we're reduced to looking at the transcripts from five years ago that were released last week to try and discern what Paul thinks today, because we can't figure it out from what he's saying today. So I, I've been disappointed. I understand he's new at the job. I understand he's going to have to grow into the job, but JBJ quit trying to be Dr. J. Ph.D. in economics. You're not one. And that's why we like you and stop being that. And I think you'll be a much better Fed chairman. Well,
1: if Jay Powell is listening, he will now go and look in a mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm strong enough. And gosh darn it, people like me. And perhaps he'll be a little bit more consistent. Jim, I do want to get your sense on the 10-year Treasury yield because we have seen it tick up. We've seen the curve widen a little bit, a little bit of steepening, moving away from sort of the near inversion spots. Do you expect that steepening to continue? Do you expect see see uh, the, the long end sell off. In other words, 30 year yields rise a lot more as well as 10 year yields.
2: Yeah, I do expect them to go up at least over the next you know, couple of weeks or months. Let's draw this a little bit bigger. If you look at a chart of the yield curve, or you look at a chart of the 10 year yield, or you look at a chart of the S&P 500, or you look at a chart of crude oil, you're looking at the same chart. Because they're all moving up and down together right now because we're being driven by this macro fear of recession, political instability, trade, all that mixed up in the one. So I think that we are probably going to see more recovery in the market. Stock market goes up, crude oil goes up, yields go up, the yield curve widens. All of that will happen. The question is, when will they start trading like their own individual markets instead of just variations on the same theme? I think that's still a few months away at the earliest because I still think there's this fear of what could be coming next. So higher yields, higher stock prices still think if you get into later this year, there's a chance we might have a retest. I'm putting my technical analysis hat on. It's rare to see a sell off that hard or yields fall that much without at least attempting a retest of that. I still think that's to come. For the next several weeks to months, I think it's going to be higher yields and higher stock prices. And
3: just 10 seconds, uh, Jim, recession, odds still low in your sense?
2: Yeah, I know. I'm going to put them at 45 to 50%, just a little lower than a half, because I still don't trust the Fed. They've got the murder weapon.
3: Very good. Jim. <laughs> th- wow. Thanks very much, Jim. We appreciate it. That's Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Uh, not shy to kind of lay or put the blame where you think it should lay. Yeah. Jim
1: doesn't mince words. I love it.
3: Boy, I am. I like to eat out as much as the next person. Um, I don't think my tastes are over the top. I think I'm very mainstream. But it's interesting here in New York City. It's harder and harder to find a reasonably priced restaurant. I I suspect that might be true in other large markets. Um, to give us some color on this, we have Peter Elliott, Peter's the editor at Bloomberg Reserve. Um, and he has written some really cool stuff about what's going on in the fine dining uh, segment of the business. And what Peter, what have you found? Uh,
0: good morning. Um, there's no doubt about it. Uh, what what you sell what you reap. <laughs> Rents are high. Uh, from Williamsburg to Chelsea, from Chelsea to the Upper East Side, to London, to Paris, to Rome. And that affects what restaurants have to do in order to make back anything like a return. And that is uh, turning out to be a very, very big problem for restaurants um, from 11 Madison Park to, you know, to Shake Shack. It's it's that wide a span. Basically, everything in food right now has to do with the bottom line of what they pay in rent. And you're just going to wind up paying for that when you get your credit card statement.
1: So let's talk about prices. I mean, what type of entree pricing are you talking about to make a restaurant viable in an expensive city like New York?
0: I am so old. I remember sitting in the studio, you know, in my <laughs> 20s when yeah. I was a young man, um, you know, and we would talk about the $20 entree. And then we talk about the $25 entree and then the 30 you know, You go to 4 Charles Prime Rib, you're talking about $48. You're talking about $60. There's really no limit anymore. Um, It really, it used to be like one of those New York Times feature stories and then a Bloomberg feature story. But now you're paying just to sit down at some sushi restaurants. You're not even talking about an entree cost. You're talking about the evening that starts at $350 or, you know, to go to Massa. But those are the high end. Now it's the middle thing. I'm on a, I, I know you'll, all support the difficulty of my life when i tell you i am on a mission to find sushi that doesn't cost a thousand dollars just when i sit down my
1: heart's bleeding for you that you're struggling to find sushi that doesn't cost a thousand dollars it's just
0: amazing in a world that where we're running out of fish that and that's one of the things new york is a particularly bad trap on the sushi front because you can get reasonably priced sushi Listeners out there, please feel free to message me, Peter Elliott at bloomberg.net Let me know where you can find decent sushi that's not machine sushi, that does not cost three hundred and fifty dollars just to sit down. So you can say omakase. Um, it's become just oh my god. sort of he an,
1: is so spoiled, Paul. Oh my I, god, I, I can't even handle it. All right, it. Take, me down. Take, <laughs> me down. take
3: me down. Take me down. All right. So just just to, you mentioned Eleven Madison Park, and 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 that's a restaurant. I used to work in that building back in a prior life, and when that restaurant opened, it was a good restaurant. We could actually eat there. Junior investment bankers could go to go down and actually eat there and not blow our, our, our budget. What's happened to that restaurant?
0: Well, starting back where, where you were, then you could probably also walk in and say, hi, I work upstairs. Could I have a table? And they probably said yes. Absolutely. Now they probably say, eh, credit suisse, get in line. You know, it's, not a, it's a very difficult restaurant because it has become a destination restaurant. So 11 Madison Park, Clever bunch of guys in the sense that, you know, some parts of the food business are like fashion. So that's the couture end of their business. Nomad is their, their middle restaurant. Made Nice is their lower end restaurant. They even do food trucks in Los Angeles. They've done some pop ups in the Hamptons. So they have a very good and very broad business model. 11 Madison Park doesn't make money for them. And, and, and I worry for them in the sense that someday somebody's going to ask make them pay market rent for for that spot. So a destination restaurant doesn't really have time for a guy like you coming down from, you know, I've down heard that From That's upstairs, okay. <laughs> um, for thing. is by it still a great
4: restaurant? restaurant?
1: It is a, yeah. Well, Peter, I'd love to get your feeling on how many restaurants can survive as destination restaurants. In other words, is the world shrinking dramatically as rents go up, and there could only be so many, uh, you know, out there that can afford to reject?
0: It's January. You, 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 heard it here. I, I would go on the record and say that, like. Uh, the era of the omakase restaurant, the era of the French restaurant, the era of the, you know, I do think the era of the fixed menu uh, Blanca 11 Madison Park model is ending. For the simple reason that there's very few people who have that kind of money and and who are willing to sit down for three and a half hours to have 14 courses. I think that was a very big thing in the past you know, the past era, if you will, of our lives in the food business, my life in the food business. Uh, And certainly it's very hard for me to convince a Bloomberg client to sit down for that amount of time. So they want quicker, easier options, which is why Shake Shack, which has a a familial relationship with Eleven Madison Park, believe it or not, um, is, is, is where the money is to the extent there's any money in the restaurant business at all.
3: All right. So, what are the rest of us doing if we want to go out in New York or London or other major markets that are experiencing some of these real estate mm-hmm. uh, issues? Where do we go? What do we do? Is there still a market for us out there? There is absolutely a
0: market for you out there, and many, many others. And where where I am seeing the trend move for twenty nineteen is that a lot of these restaurants and Eleven Madison is part of that. They're getting a lot of they're getting a lot of pressure from us today. Is um, Restaurants like Upland, restaurants like, you know, um, um, what's it called? Hillstone on Lexington Avenue that have branches, which are really a notch above, you know, commercial, what we call muffsos in the trade, multi unit, full service operators. In our days, it used to be Denny's, you know? And obviously, we're not going to get a guy like you to go to Denny's. And I can't see taking Lisa there either. I've been not, to Denny's. Not that. No, of a night. Late at night, though. Hey, you're talking to a guy who just went to (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I loved it. I thought it was great. But remember, what Shake Shack did was say, here's a slightly better burger for slightly more. And so restaurants are learning the hard way that a Hillstone or an Upland, you can get much better food um, for a little bit more, and you don't have to do, may, you know, maybe save the the, the, the big um, prefix menu experience for a once-a-year thing, an anniversary or a special occasion.
1: So what about all the billionaires? Because the number of those has risen dramatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeff Gunlock took to Twitter, complaining that his breakfast spot was raising prices by 10% uh, this week. Uh, but I'm just wondering, where do these billionaires Eat.
0: Um, billionaires eat at restaurants that have worked out how to how to shape this. Um, y- you know, the, the Alta Marea group springs to mind. The Marea on Central Park South you probably see more billionaires sitting at, at the, those lovely corner tables than probably anywhere else in New York. Um, they tend to want to go to safe places where the food is done by, you know, it's, that's really the thing. The, the era of Daniel Café boulou in the city uh, is another great example where you're pretty much consistently going to get the same thing every time, but it's expensive. I mean, Murray is not a cheap place to go. Um, still, it has the kind of cachet that is good enough for billionaires.
3: Well, Lisa knows that I'm all about the power of lunch. And so that was the Four Seasons restaurant uh, for years <laughs> Hurry, and years and years in the Seagrams. They forced to move, or they moved from the mm-hmm. longtime iconic Seagram's building. Was that also a rent economic issue?
0: No, in that case. Th- well, it was. a uh, 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 we, we might have to we might have to open a bottle to have this conversation. Yeah, please. Uh, let's you know if if, if <laughs> Paul's going off for his 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 uh, three martini lunch, then we better get started. Um, that was a very interesting real estate based story so the secret building was bought by a B Rosen and RKR Holdings and that's their thing they buy 50s modernist buildings like lever house across the street and that's it the four seasons lease was up he wanted new operators the four seasons moved to a new space and is you know doing well or depending on how you like it
1: just in about 40 seconds here, I'm wondering how much has Wall Street pulled back on the power lunch and on expenses, and how is that affecting the restaurant industry?
0: Hugely. Um, Wall Street as first of all, the, the power lunch thing really is over. It's more like the power breakfast. We have, the- we have power soup here. There Lumberg. you go. Power yes. yoga. Uh, power yoga, and, and lunch is really a thing of the past, which is why the sweet greens of the world do so well. Plenty of billionaire gets sweet green.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so in other words, and that's affecting. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And and companies are really, really cracking down on those lunches. So you have to be or, or dinners and their expenses. So it's it's restaurants can't even depend on those kind of figures anymore. And more of them are actually investing in restaurants themselves. But we'll talk about that next time.
1: Absolutely, Peter Elliott, or perhaps over dinner if you want a partner. Abs- absolutely, absolutely. Dine
3: Elliot. go. I saw, I saw what you did there.
1: <laughs> Trying my hardest, Peter Elliott, who has the best job at Bloomberg, uh, eating and dining at the best establishments out there. He is searching for some good sushi that's under $1,000. If you have ideas, you can email him.
3: So Lisa let's dive a little bit deeper into Morgan Stanley and some of the other banks and investment banks results we've uh, we've heard this week. Joining us on the phone is Ken Leone, Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA. Uh, Ken, welcome. Wonder if you could uh, you know, we just had Morgan Stanley this morning. Street's not liking the numbers. What did you see?
5: So Morgan stanley disappointed relative to their peers and and also Coming off a strong third quarter, they pretty much washed out with probably the weakest quarter of the big six of the large banks.
3: So uh, we had, you know, if you look across the board, let's start with just the FIC business and, and just the, the trading in general. We've seen equities on the street this quarter generally pretty good, but it was really the fixed income currencies and commodities. So talk to us about the trading desk at Morgan Stanley and how were they, you know, you know, relative to your expectations, relative <clears throat> to their peers?
5: It's a good place to start. And when we look at trading, equity was flat. Uh, Even though with all volatility, maybe investors were on the sidelines in December, uh, particularly fixed income with uh, rate and credit uh, products um, just didn't really work well. Uh, Essentially, Morgan Stanley uh, took client trades, and it didn't help them. That was down 30%. In other words, they
1: lost money making incremental bets on whether the price was going to go up or down on assets that they took on for clients. Yes. All right. Isn't that
3: their job, though?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, actually, this is this is a big debate, right? At what point? What's the what's the crossover line between prop trading and making exactly. markets? You know, banks trying to get out of the market making business because it can be a loss industry, as we're seeing uh, with some of these results out of bond trading. But what I'm wondering, Ken, from your perspective, the battle of the behemoths. We've got Morgan Stanley versus Goldman Sachs, and they've kind of pitted themselves against each other when it comes to bond trading. Goldman Sachs saying we're doubling down a few years ago. Morgan Stanley say we're cutting back, and Morgan Stanley has won quarter after quarter after quarter until now. Do we take anything away from that at a time when Morgan Stanley's market capitalization is now declining beneath Goldman Sachs for the first time in many months?
5: absolutely and and the delta change for morgan stanley just wasn't anything else they could do proactively for fourth quarter goldman sachs totally different story for the last 9 months they've been moving into the traditional corporate treasury where they had low market share versus the investment segments such as um hedge funds and prime brokerage, et cetera. So the ability for Goldman Sachs now with new leadership from investment banking is bringing that into better integration with the trading desk. Uh, and that speaks to better performance from Goldman Sachs yesterday versus Morgan Stanley today.
3: So Ken, being a longtime Wall Streeter myself, and when January comes around every year, I think compensation um, How did Morgan Stanley do in terms of their compensation, their compensation ratio? How were they doing on the cost side?
5: So, um, the capital markets, investment banking, and perhaps some trading, uh, they did well. But, you know, significantly in their large wealth management business, there were compensation adjustments related to deferrals. Um, James Gorman spoke to the risk of having such a high level in deferred um, compensation. So, they they took that adjustment in this quarter, but I I think wealth management also was affected by lower market levels. Uh, They didn't say today, Goldman said yesterday, that in December, when you have lower market levels, it affects fees, typically one month later, which would be January.
1: So, I, I want to talk a little bit about Morgan Stanley's path forward, because one thing that James Gorman said on the earnings call, is that they are thinking about acquisitions now, after being sort of out of that game for a while. Can you think of some smaller uh, investment firms or, uh, or banking firms that they would be looking to buy?
5: I think it's more creative and disruptive than that. Uh, earlier in 2018, we saw J.P. Morgan embrace Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon. It was interesting. Citi kicked off this week, Monday. And Friday, before that, they had an announcement about Value Act with now having formal discussions internally um, on Friday. I, and I think where that's going, looking at Value Act, is large banks see Changes in terms of digital and also in terms of transactions. So, partnering uh, with uh, financial service companies or technology, I think, is going to be a big part of the 2019 story.
1: Okay, so which companies would be a sort of game for Morgan Stanley?
5: So, you know, generally, it, I think it's going to be strategic, um, not necessarily where they make. Um, large acquisitions, I think tactical would be anything that helps them in terms of software development uh, for trading but but then also uh, for their growing business and wealth management, which might also be moving more into retail consumer banking like more like Goldman Sachs.
1: All right. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm just trying to imagine, are we talking Aladdin? Are we talking uh, PayPal? But uh, I guess we shall see. And uh, it's sort of an interesting idea that financial technology is the place where a lot of big banks are looking to add. And if it's not add in in wholesale uh, form in the traditional sense, it's at least partner on some kind of concrete sense. Uh, Ken Leon, thank you so much for being with us. He is Global Director of Industry and Equity Research at CFRA Research. Definitely the battle of the behemoths is fascinating to me because they took such different tacks, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs.
3: And and, and it's very much in the hallways of both Morgan Stanley and Goldman uh, Sachs, they're looking at each other every single day.
1: And today Goldman Sachs is wearing a smile, Morgan Stanley not so much. But uh, right now, I want to remember a legend of the investing industry, Jack Bogle, who died yesterday of cancer at age 89, really transformed the way people paid for their money management. Joining us now, Ben Steverman, personal finance editor for Bloomberg News here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studios. So, Ben, can you give us a sense of just how pivotal Jack was in the entire creation of indexing and lowering fees for individuals?
4: Yeah. Yeah. When- the first index fund launched by jack bogle it was he really launched the first one that was accessible to everyday investors and when that launched it was a flop and he really stuck that was stuck. In the 80s right it was the mid 70s mid 70s and it wasn't until the late 80s that it really started to perform well and attract a lot of assets um so he stuck with it for basically 10 years when a lot of people were doubting this idea it had a lot of support among academic economists but people were like this doesn't work in theory go go invest with peter lynch at fidelity you're going to do so much better um but then something started to change and um the other thing that he was basically he was doing was cutting fees um and whenever vanguard would uh, become more efficient they use a lot of technology they would pass the savings on to their investors and as it got big and became this big player, people forget now we're, we're in this world of fee wars where everybody's competing to offer the lowest cost product. That That's a pretty recent development. And for a long time, it was only Vanguard that was really pushing that conversation.
3: Yeah, it's been, you know, one of his lasting legacies will be the structural reduction in fees in the mutual fund industry. So I can't imagine. I just wonder how his over the years, how have the mutual fund giants and his competitors viewed Jack and viewed Van Vanguard. Is this, you know, it's obviously not in their business interest what, what he was doing. I, last night I was
4: talking to Jeremy Grantham, uh, the legendary investor, and he was saying that uh, Jack Bogle was a royal pain in the bottom. <laughs> For, for the people in the investment industry.
1: Yeah, a lot of people didn't like him because he basically took money out of their pockets.
4: He was amazing. He would go to investment conferences and he would tell a room full of financial advisors that you're all overpaid and you're <laughs> taking way too much of your client's money. He really had no fear about that.
1: We had the honor of speaking with Jack Bogle in December of 2017. Take a listen to what he had to say about ETFs.
4: You know, we have data here that shows that uh, ETFs have had in the last 10 years a 4.7% annual return. And the traditional index fund have had a 7.1% annual return. In other words, the ETFs have not worked out well for investors. I don't know why nobody knows this. Uh, so, in a decade, the uh, traditional index fund's up about 100% cumulatively, and the ETF about 60%. I mean, that's not, that's not a strong record.
1: So even though he basically laid the groundwork for the entire ETF complex, not very positive on the actual funds.
4: He, he didn't understand why anyone would want to trade uh, intraday. He just didn't get the idea. He, he thought, you know, put money in the market, buy, hold, wait patiently as your market return comes in. Why are you getting fancy with this? Uh, and, that, and that any temptation to trade would be bad for clients.
3: You know it's interesting you, you look at the amount of money that is going into Vanguard I mean their assets under management of 4.9 trillion in Malvern Pennsylvania outside of Philadelphia you you think about that kind of assets under management you his but none of that or not much of that really accrued to him he wasn't one of those bigger than life mutual fund managers like peter lynch or a hedge fund manager like we see around over the last 20 years kind of a modest guy
4: yeah yeah and i think he 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 gave a lot to charity as well i he, he really um he seemed like he lived uh his principles which was this industry needs to put clients first needs to put investors first
1: so just looking forward, uh, his legacy will be having basically killed off fees, right? I'm just wondering from your perspective, how long lasting? I mean, have we already seen that progression take place or are we in the early innings still?
4: Oh, no. I Well, I think that he wa- he won, basically. I mean, I, I think that we're now at the point where we're wondering how big index funds can get before the market before there's sort of like an overcorrection, you know, how how much, uh, how much index assets can we take? Um, Because you look at endowments, you look at pension funds, you look at the underperformance in the hedge fund industry. um, Jack Bogle doesn't, people just, the numbers themselves keep making Jack Bogle's argument for him, even when he's not around.
1: Ben Steverman, thank you so much for being with us, Ben Steverman, Personal Finance Editor for Bloomberg News, remembering Jack Bogle, who arguably did more to the industry of asset management than anybody else, I would argue.
3: And certainly for the individual investor, made it uh, affordable and uh, provided fantastic performance over the years.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.